In a recent article in The Guardian by President Michael D. Higgins, he talked about reflecting on the more uncomfortable aspects of Ireland and Britain's intertwined history. He wrote, I am struck by a disinclination in both academic and journalistic accounts to critique empire and imperialism. And that's what we're going to talk about now, how both our countries deal with an imperial past. Ireland, Empire and the Early Modern World is the title of this year's annual James Ford Lecture Series from Oxford University. The focus of the six lectures is on Ireland and the First English Empire from uh, about the middle of the 16th century to the middle of the 18th century. But they also look to other European and global empires for meaningful comparisons and contrasts and explore how we wrestle with the legacy of empire in modern times. The lectures were delivered by Professor Jane Almeyer of Trinity College Dublin. Jane, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thanks, Miles. Tell us a little bit more, uh, first of all, about the lectures themselves and about the kind of response that you got. Unfortunately, you didn't have the great pleasure of delivering them in Oxford in person. You had to do it from the uh, the hub in, in Trinity. Uh, Miles, you're right. Uh, the pandemic meant that they were delivered for the first time ever. In uh, They've been going since the 1890s. And I'm only the second person from the Republic of Ireland invited to give the Ford. So it was a big moment. And sadly, uh, it all happened uh, virtually. But actually, it means they're so much more accessible. So, uh, I mean, there was great audiences when I was giving them. And then they've now moved on to the RTE uh, history website. And I heard yesterday over 10,000 people have downloaded them just in the last couple of weeks. And I think that's telling us something about the topic and the timeliness of it. But as you know yourself, Miles, there's no face, I mean, face to face, there's no substitute Mm. for that debate discussion that you would have if they had been delivered live. So I did miss that much as I'm delighted by just how how many people now are listening to them. Yeah, 10,000 wouldn't probably would not fit into any of the even the larger lecture (laughs) halls in, uh, in, in Trinity College. Definitely not. Have you been have you been getting much of a response? I mean, because yeah. they were online, there's more of an opportunity for, for people to respond directly online. Do you know, there's been a phenomenal response to them. And it's been very interesting to see. So on the one hand, um, the response from my academic colleagues has been, well, you know, it's great that we're now looking at empire through fresh eyes. We're bringing the whole discussion back to the 16th and 17th century. From the wider sort of public, I think empire is so core to our identity that it's been interesting to see some people feeling clearly very uncomfortable by the discussion and with the discussion. And I wrote an op-ed in the Irish Times at the end of December that really created a very extreme response. I don't know about you, Miles, but I'd never been trolled on, on Twitter before. But it really brought out the extremists, the right wing nationalists, the white supremacists. It brought out the misogynists. Obviously, I'm a woman speaking, but I was born in Africa. And I think, you know, people just that people made assumptions there. And so it brought out the racists, but also Olmeyer. I think people, you know, it's a Jewish sounding name. So it brought out the anti-Semites as well. So it was absolutely extraordinary. I've never experienced anything quite like it. And of course, when you see that happening, it just makes you even more determined to speak out and sort of stand up to the bullies. 
But it also shows me that history really matters. And that's why it's critical we have, you know, these conversations. And what was also interesting for every, you know, grumpy email or a, a grumpy letter to the Irish Times, there were tens of people writing saying, I'm so glad that you're actually helping us acknowledge and engage in a respectful way with issues around empire. Maybe my uncle, you know, served in the Malayan civil service or I had a, an aunt who was a nurse in the British army or, you know, a, a father who, who served in uh, India or what have you. And so lots and lots of people then shared their own personal stories with me, Miles. And that's always such a privilege because we all have our own histories. And I think just opening it up and very much part of that decade of commemoration, people, I think, have a maturity about engaging with empire in all, you know, it, but it's a tricky one and, and a very complex uh, subject. Because people are realising, as you say, the decade of commemoration, people have looked and discovered that, yes, I had a great grand uncle who was in the First World War. That was unexpected or more expected. I had a great grand uncle or a grand uncle or whatever who was in the the War of Independence. But uh, one thing people probably wouldn't have been searching for was the extent to which any of their ancestors had been in any way involved in empire and probably as many would have been as those two other phenomena combined, wouldn't you say? Uh, Very much so. And of course, people engaged in empire because it provided an economic opportunity. My mother was a teacher in uh, what was then Northern Rhodesia. And the only reason she went was because she needed a job. This is Ireland in the 1950s. And so there was that sense of economic opportunity. It doesn't mean that people were buying into the ideology of the British Empire. And that's as true today as it was in the past. A lot was driven by economic necessity, the old adage of, you know, taking the king's shilling. And I think when we look back in time, say in the mid-19th century, two-thirds of the British army in India was made up of Irish Catholics. And they were there simply because they had no other opportunities. But the Connacht Rangers mutiny took place not in Ireland, but in India. Exactly, exactly. And the truth is that Daly died uh, because the British could not afford for their army in India to mutiny because so many of them were Irish. So, you know, I think here it just adds a layer of complexity uh, to all of this. And obviously we've had discussions around Amritsar. I was very struck. The anniversary was the 13th of April, 1919. So obviously 2019. And when the story was broadcast on Irish radio, I think people were just in disbelief about the fact that the commander uh, that day of the Punjab, but more importantly, in the Jalanwala Bag, were people from Ireland or of Irish provenance. And Reginald Dyer, who you know was educated in, in Middleton, he was the man who oversaw the massacre. And the lieutenant governor of the Punjab was Michael O'Dwyer, a, a Catholic from Tipperary. Um, and this sort of challenges the master narrative of the Irish as victims, not active perpetrators of atrocities like this. And you know, but that makes us feel very uncomfortable as well. And obviously there's been, you know, a reaction to this. But somebody like O'Dwyer was educated at Balliol College in Oxford, which, of course, where Boris Johnson and 
many members of the, the Tory cabinet were, were educated, which was the intellectual epicentre of empire in uh, the 19th and 20th centuries. So, so I think it's very, just very important that we recognise this, we're aware of it, and that we have, as I say, an informed and, and respectful discussion and debate about it. And does that offer us a get-out clause for O'Dwyer? Oh, he went to Oxford. He was a Balliol boy. So that's the get-out clause because we can't argue that all of the imperial atrocities visited on India, Malaya, etc., where the Irish were involved. Oh, it was the Anglo-Irish. It was the Protestants. It wasn't the Catholics. Well, I think, again, in this case, obviously he was a Catholic. And I think the thing that we have to recognise, Miles, is that Catholics were involved in, if you want, the imperial venture from the 16th century when Ireland itself was a colony. It was England's first colony. And I would have worked extensively on Irish Catholics who would have been key to this whole anglicising process in Ireland from its, you know, as I say, from the late 16th century. And then many of whom would have been very aggressive imperialists themselves. And we see this particularly in the Caribbean, where the Irish may have gone out as indentured servants, but within sometimes a decade become uh, very, very successful slave masters themselves. So, you know, I, again, it's a very complicated story. And, and I think, you know, it's not that, you know, you want to uh, challenge identity myths, but I think it's very important that we're not bound by our history, that we have, if you want, the maturity to, to bow to it and to actually understand it in all of its complexity. Now, obviously, we've been going through a process of addressing and learning from the darker parts of our history, you know, with the decade of commemoration, although the darkest part is yet to come. And it'll be very interesting to see how we manage to navigate the civil war. How do you contrast or compare what we do and our approach, the Irish approach to history to, say, the British approach to history and legacy of empire? So uh, that's a great question. And I'm going to speak to the British, but I'd also then maybe like to reflect a little bit on the Indian approach to empire, because I think that actually is a more meaningful one in some respects. But I've been very struck. Obviously, I was giving the Ford lectures and I was to give them in Oxford, the intellectual epicentre of empire in the 19th century, in an auditorium that overlooks the statue of Cecil Rhodes, and I was to be a fellow of All Souls College, which would be home to the Codrington Library, which is about to be renamed because of it basically was built on uh, riches accrued through slavery and enslaved peoples in in the Caribbean. So I was actually, um, I'm, I'm disappointed in a way, I didn't have an opportunity to have that conversation there because I think that what we're seeing in, in the UK, in Oxford, in Bristol, in Glasgow, in other words, universities that were very much at the epicentre of empire, as indeed my own university, Trinity, was, that they're having to come to terms with that in, I think, a very mature and a very uh, reflectful way. And they're, they're actually responding to it as, you know, as I think in a way that gives us all a great sense of, well, we have to come to terms with the past. What then at the other extreme, we have, if you want, the British tabloids who are vilifying uh, historians as, you know, public enemies number one. 
because they're somehow betraying the great British Empire and, as I say, being vilified for it. Whereas I think here in Ireland, actually, we're approaching it in a much more pragmatic way. On the one hand, of course, we have to acknowledge that we were very much you know, victims of imperialism and there's no escaping the fact that imperialism is about the exercise of violence and extreme violence in an Irish case, but also then recognising that, you know, Irish people, both Catholics and Protestants of, you know, both, if you want, Gaelic provenance as well as Anglo-English uh, provenance, were also active perpetrators. Uh, you know, we've been able to, I think, to approach that in a much more balanced, a much more nuanced way, although it's not easy. Whereas I just, I'm not seeing that apart from within the universities. And also, I think, obviously, some of the museums are having to come to terms with this, including, of course, the Hunt Museum most recently uh, in an Irish context. So, you know, you've got that spectrum of response. I do think in Ireland that we are uh, handling it. And I think, actually, this discussion of empire would not have been possible except for what we have been going through in terms of the decade of commemorations. And I agree, you know, the next, the final couple of years are the most difficult, but I've been hugely impressed by how we've approached it. I want to say a few words though, Miles, if, if you don't mind about how it's in India. I was very struck. So a lot of my work now is comparative work on Ireland and India. And the founding father of Bombay was an Irishman called Gerald Anger. And the, the treasure and the riches that he made in India, he remitted in the 1660s and 1670s and allowed his brother, who was the Earl of Longford, to develop Anger Street. So it was the first suburb in Dublin. And the next time you walk down Anger Street, remember that Anger Street was developed on the back of empire. He was a member of the East India Company and the governor of Surat and the first governor of Bombay or the first main governor of Bombay. Anyway, to cut a long story short, that relationship between Ireland and India has a very, very long history. And for the most part, the Irish were servants of empire in India, whether in terms of the administration or the army. But then, of course, with the rise of the constitutional uh, you know, home rule, we see the Indian home rule movement looking for inspiration to what was going in in Ireland. The same with the Land League. Somebody like uh, Gandhi looked very much to Michael Davitt and the whole Land League movement for inspiration. And obviously Parnell and the Home Rulers. And then, of course, increasingly, it was looking to Irish republicanism, to Pierce, to Collins and others. And the Irish, if you want, taught the Indians their ABC of freedom fighting. So it was very interesting for me working on Ireland and India and living there for extended periods of time because on the one hand, the Indians were very accepting of the Irish because they saw us as being victims, if you want, as well. They felt much less comfortable when obviously the Irish were actively engaged, especially in the Amritsar uh, massacre. And so I could see this uh, sort of unfolding when I was talking about these, obviously I lectured all over India, including in places like Aligarh, which would be the big Muslim university, as well as in Delhi and in Mumbai. And, you know, there was this ambivalence. Um, and I actually think that we in Ireland have come to terms with our imperial legacy much more than colleagues in India have, both in terms of the scholarly world and then the, the, the more general public. And I suppose that's a product of time. India, obviously, independence came in 1947. So, you know, for them, it's still extraordinarily raw. I'm not saying it's raw in an Irish context, but it, I mean, it is. But I mean, we've moved on. And I, I think the other thing is partition. We always have to remember 
that the legislation used to partition Ireland in 1920 was the exact same legislation used to partition India. And it was interesting that Jinnah, who was the head of the Muslim League, actually invoked Ireland and said, you know, we want to have the same treatment that Ireland has had in terms of partition. And it was Nehru and Gandhi who were saying, no, we don't want to create little Ulsters in the subcontinent. And of course, that's exactly uh, what happened. But that legacy of partition in an Indian and Pakistani context is so brutal and so bloody that there would be no hope, certainly in our lifetimes, of India and Pakistan ever being reunited. It's a very different contemporary context. Whereas I think the context here in Ireland is different. And I think we're able to have a very meaningful conversations about a potential shared future on our island in a way that isn't possible in the Indian subcontinent. So, I mean, it's again, very interesting, uh, different ways of, of dealing with it. But the most important thing is that we do deal with it, because if we don't deal with it, it will always be there and will be a running sore. So, again, I think this conversation is hugely important that, you know, to quote the president, that historical amnesia is not healthy. We absolutely need to have these discussions, but they need to be informed ones and they need to be done with respect. Not trolling on Twitter, obviously. Um, So let me take you back to, you know, a period that you're obviously very comfortable with. And in fact, to beyond that, to well before that period and cite two individuals, both apologists for empire in their own way. They may not have seen it like that as such, but philosophers of empire. The first the delightful Geraldus Cambrensis, Gerald of Wales, and uh, the second far more celebrated Edmund Spencer, not celebrated necessarily for anything to do with Ireland, but uh, to do with his, uh, his poetry. Tell me about their roles in, in Emperor, one in the 12th uh, century and then one in the 16th century. Well, they're both very important. So uh, one of the lectures in the Fords is called Laboratory for Empire. In other words, the way that Ireland actually becomes a playground where ideas and policies are explored and then later exported. And we see this very clearly both with Geraldus Cambrensis and with Edmund Spencer, where we see an ideology, if you want, of empire being developed. And they're both very important because Geraldus Cambrensis, obviously he was writing in the 12th century, but his work was extensively republished in the 16th and 17th century and profoundly influenced those who were colonising and anglicising Ireland in the early modern period, and especially Edmund Spencer. So he, if you want, lifted wholesale these ideas that Cambrensis had, that the Irish were barbaric, they were uncivil, they were savages. And then, of course, he added his own special twist, which is, of course, that the Irish were pagans and Catholics. And what we have in Edmund Spencer is pure racism. And it really becomes the classic exponent of racism, especially his view of the state of Ireland, which called for the wholesale destruction of the Irish, along with our culture, society, economy, and invited England to enjoy a monopoly over the exercise of violence. And they use this word civilise, to civilise or to anglicise. And they would, you know, civilise Ireland, inverted commas, by making it English. And then having purged 
merged, if you want, Ireland of its Irishness, the country then would be colonised by English settlers who would be then responsible for the erection of the political, economic, social framework that was considered necessary to support a civil and Protestant faith. And that meant you know, the building of towns, roads, bridges, houses, gardens, you know, it was a very physical as well as obviously cultural in terms of the English language, the English legal system, English agricultural uh, practices. And what's so important about Spencer and this aggressive imperialism that he was touting was it profoundly shaped the mindsets of his immediate circle, but then of later figures like Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Strafford, and Wentworth was the person who published basically the view in 1633. But then it also circulated very widely in London. So it influenced those who were, if you want, setting the agenda for Ireland in London. And then these ethnocentric ideas were basically adopted wholesale by English colonists going into the new world. And this is something, of course, the work of Nicholas Canny and D.B. Quinn has really shown us how, you know, the assumptions of paganism and savagery and, and barbarism were then applied to the indigenous peoples of the new world. But it's even more important to that, Miles, because this othering of the Irish, this dehumanisation as a means of control then persisted well into the 19th century. And where we see these uh, representations of the Irish in America, especially as monkey-like. And then, of course, it permeated into Asia as well. So it's hard to overstate the sheer significance of Spencer as a foundational text as Cambrensis had been in the earlier period. So, I mean, it's one of those ones where I think it's a great example of Ireland as that laboratory for the creation of this ideology of racism. The President Higgins, I mentioned him in the introduction, obviously, he has used terms like ethical remembering and feigned amnesia. What do those terms in conclusion, what, what do they mean to you and how can they be applied to this topic of, of empire and remembering empire? Well, for me, I think what's important is that we do this, in again, in a very, very balanced and respectful way, that we absolutely acknowledge what happened. And it has to be driven here by empirical research. And this is where the work of you know, history is just beginning miles, because while we know a lot about the Irish in the context of the English, the Anglophone Empire, we still know very little about the Irish in the empires of France or Spain or Portugal. And I think, you know, the moment has come to really do deep research into what this means and that means identifying it, documenting it and then trying to understand what it means in terms of identity, uh, not just in the context of the 21st century but also in the context of the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century and this is a journey for me that's just beginning but it does need to be a discussion that really is informed by empirical research and then one that people can engage with in a way that allows us to 
you know, better understand. It's all about understanding uh, where we've come from so we can better understand who we are and above all, where we're going, especially in the context of our shared futures. Well, those I think are the key words, empirical research, respect and understanding, uh, Jane. And the title of the Ford series of lectures by Jane Almira is Ireland, Empire and the Early Modern World. If you haven't already watched them, I would highly uh, recommend them indeed. They're hosted right now at the rte.ie forward slash history. We'll put a direct link up on our own uh, website. Jane, it's been fascinating talking to you uh, about your work and about the Ford series of lectures. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the History Show. Thank you, Miles, for having me. It's been a privilege.